Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Well then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Carroll. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's not too vulgar display of power, Carroll. Today's review is of William Friedkin's 1973 Oscar-winning adaptation of William Peter Blatty's infamous demonic novel, The Exorcist, in which priest Damien Karras is given the ultimate test of faith as he attempts to free a young girl who's been possessed by a demon. And to assist me in today's exorcism of evil is my Twitter pal, Mike. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, Jay. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was excited to have you. Uh, we've been following each other on Twitter for so long, and we've been kind of talking about movies here and there, so I figured you'd be the perfect guest to talk about The Exorcist. We're a regular kinderman and Father Dyer over here. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Um, but before we dive into one of the most renowned and infamous horror films of all time, I like to do a quick little icebreaker with first-time guests where I ask the first horror film that had a profound effect on you, uh, for better or worse. Well, it was this one. It was The Exorcist, for sure. I um, I saw it when I was probably 11. Uh, my friends and I went to Blockbuster. It was around Halloween time, probably maybe around this date. And we went and got a bunch of scary movies. And we said, we can watch anything. We'll watch The Exorcist. And I ended up turning it off uh, right when the uh, statue of the Virgin Mary is vandalized. I was like, no, too much, too much. Because I was, <laughs> I was growing up Catholic at the time. I was in the middle of it. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, man. If that was your reaction to the the, uh, the desecration, imagine if you'd gotten to the rest of the movie. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, it's funny because you can't actually mention this movie to my mother. You can't even say anything about it to her. If you quote it in passing, she will catch it and tell you, stop it. Please stop it. You're <laughs> upsetting me. She saw it once in the theater when she was 23 years old. Never spoke about it again. <laughs> I guess that's kind of really tied into all of the uh, backlash that this movie kind of generated basically in terms of just the general consciousness of the movie. Um, but yeah, that was kind of similar to my experience. I got, when I was probably like 10 or 11, my dad showed me at one Halloween. He was like, oh, we could watch like the TV edited version of it or something. I probably will uh, omit some of the more graphic elements. And I think we got about like 25 minutes into it or something. And then we were just like, I got to bail on this. This yeah, is not gonna work for me. This is a bad plan. This is yeah. this has been a bad idea. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies that really does meet uh, live up to its reputation of being terrifying. It's still yeah. terrifying. Like, I mean, it's it's a. I feel like it's kind of snobbed on by horror fans a little bit, just because it is. It was an awards movie, and it was you know a guy wasn't like necessarily a horror director. But, you know, Friedkin had done like The French Connection and he was a big time guy. But it's scary as shit. It really is. I haven't revisited the movie as many times as you have. And yet it still is absolutely terrifying. And it hits just as hard as it does the first time I saw it. And I think you're right that in the kind of like general horror conversation, especially the farther we get from its release, a lot of new horror fans, maybe or younger horror fans might be like, well, that's just one of those movies that was a big deal back in the day because they'd never seen anything like it. And right. in revisiting it, I kind of approached it a little bit like that again, because like I'm not as familiar with it um, as a lot of people are. And yet it is still super disturbing and uncomfortable. And just if somebody walked in and I was watching it, I would feel like at some moments I'd have to like almost explain myself because it's just like it goes <laughs> to such 
gr like not only graphic but just like lewd levels and having a kid oh, yeah. be the centerpiece of it all is just makes it that much more timeless in a lot of ways absolutely and it, it is that's funny because i was watching it um in a place where there were some people around and uh and i did actually have to explain myself in that exact way that you said <laughs> i was like what are you watching i was like oh the exorcist they were like, oh, you're a serial murderer because that's what you do in your spare time. You just watch The Exorcist. And I said, yes, you know, because it's a great film. That's all. And uh, but no, it's um, I love the way it builds up. It knows how good it is. Like Friedkin knows exactly what he has here. And like you feel like you read the book and he was like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. He just builds it and builds it and builds it. And then, of course, like any good horror movie, it punches you in the face when it happens when the things really start to go down but even before that you are so especially especially if you are now is so aware of the film's reputation that they kind of go in like all right what's happening here and then you start watching and the movie is off something is very off from the very start of this movie like there's a um there's a scene where the director burke dennings makes the of the uh, movie within the movie he makes a joke to um to our main character or one of our main characters uh chris chris mcneil by played by ellen burston he says uh would you like to she's questioning the scene that she's in he says would you like to summon the writer and she, he's he's in paris and she says fighting and she, he says fucking and that's the joke but the the people who are listening laugh a little bit too early they laugh before the punchline and including father Karras over there in the crowd this is how we're introduced to him but it, it's just the timing of that that laugh is a tiny bit off. They laugh before the punchline and it, it kind of just makes you feel uncomfortable. You're like, wait, yeah. what's happening here? And I wonder if that was an error or it was, um, I always wondered if it was an error or if it was just to kind of throw the viewer off. And then in the, in the version you've never seen in the director's cut, it's still there. He didn't fix it. So yeah. it's to me, it's clearly intentional, you know, just to kind of make the viewer feel a little bit off kilter, which the whole movie does a really good job of. Yeah, I think that that's a really great way to put it. And again, like in revisiting it, I kind of at first was like, this beginning hour is a little slow it compared is. to what I remember. And yet the further you get into the movie, the more appreciation you have for it, kind of like thinking backwards while the movie keeps going in that it's like, yeah, all of this kind of atmosphere and tension is really building. And even if it's kind of like these conversations between certain characters that kind of go on a little too long that they're almost uncomfortable, like you're getting a sense of who everybody is and then yes. you're starting to see how all of these pieces are going to come together and it comes together in some pretty horrifying ways. It sure does. And by the end of the movie, you're like, oh, OK, this movie didn't waste a second of my time because it, all that buildup was necessary to uh, you have to meet Reagan and uh, meet everybody, get a sense of everybody's relationship and really be grounded in the real world, because that's another thing about this movie It's grounded in the real world people who do not believe in the supernatural even father Karras really rejects it out of hand he's the first thing he says when she says oh, i need an extra somebody close to me is possessed he says well i'd have to get a time machine to take you back to the 1600s because we don't do that anymore that's not a thing since we found out about mental illness and stuff like that he rejects the idea of exorcism and he's the priest so the whole movie really exists in the real world and that's kind of a big point to it is like ground yourself ground yourself ground yourself and then here's what's but what's really happening is she's possessed you know that right, the movie yeah. makes no bones about it i think something that's really interesting too like we're we both watched the uh, director's cut which is called like the version you've never seen that came out i think in 2000 
And that film, or that edition of the film, begins with a quick cut, uh, The House in Georgetown. And that's not how the theatrical version, I guess, starts. And at first I was like, okay, that doesn't seem like that has any real bearing on anything. But then I started to think this idea that like, yeah, we still have that segment where Marin, the priest, is in um, Iraq. And I was just thinking like that brief moment though in Georgetown helps to establish like, this is a story that's gonna be told in a world that we're familiar with. Had it been beginning in Iraq, it's just too far removed for something like it almost loses that grounded nature, this idea that like, yeah, this is some fantastical demonic entity that came from a very old place. And like, yeah, you still are getting that kind of origin of the demon. And yet just that brief moment in Georgetown helps to establish like, hey, this is a story that is taking place in a real world. Like we're gonna be revisiting this place, but yet kind of just starting somewhere familiar and then going somewhere completely foreign and then coming back, I found on a rewatch just helped kind of establish that in a way that as believable, I suppose, as a demonic possession movie could be. Right, right. And it's such a brief moment that you might not even notice that it opens differently, but unless you've seen it a few times. But yeah, they, it's. I think it's maybe, what do they do, 30 seconds in Georgetown, yeah. just of, maybe not even, of um, just the house and then some people walking and it's just like, hey, here's Georgetown. This is important for later, you know, just, and now we're gonna go to Iraq. But it's it's so useful. And I know there was some kind of fight between Blatty and uh, and Friedkin about, about how the movie should open. And I think it was Freakin who wanted the shot of uh, of just uh, Georgetown. I could be wrong about that. I could have it backwards. I'm not sure who fought for what. But either way, there was a disagreement. But I am a huge fan of opening in Georgetown, even just for that brief thing, because it, it puts you where you need to be, and it kind of sets something in motion for later, just like the whole Father Marin scene does, because you don't see him for most of the movie. He, Of course, yeah. he bookends the movie where he's like, he's doing the archeological dig and then he says, there's something I must do. And then you don't hear from him until it's time to, it's time for the final fight scene. For almost an hour. Like he right. just disappears for a certain portion of the film and yet you almost forget about him to a certain extent. You're And rightfully so, because you're so kind of enraptured with this whole other cast of characters yeah. that when he shows up again, it's almost like, hey, it's an old friend showing up again. You're like, oh yeah, that's who that guy is. Oh, and right, the significance, there was a guy. Yeah. And the significance of the, the backstory and the lead in into the film, I think it really becomes more significant because if we had kept kind of just like checking in with him, it really would have detracted from Chris, Reagan and Harris's story in a big way, I think. 100%, 100%. And just to have him in the background there and to not even think about him and to just let this this family happen, this priest's life happen, because you take Harris very seriously until he meets Marin. And he's kind of a child in Marin's eyes. Like Karras is this, he's the authority on exorcisms and on this, this stuff doesn't happen. He's a psychiatrist. He wrote a paper on witchcraft. And you're like, all right, this is our guy. This is our exorcist, right? This is the title character until you realize, oh no, he's not. It's, you know, when they're talking about who should perform the exorcism, what about Father Marin? And it's like, oh, I guess that's the old guy from the beginning. And that's, I guess that's going to come back <laughs> like, because it would be very, it would be a bad movie if the, if the opening scene had no significance whatsoever and we just had an old guy digging up some stuff and then they never touched on it again. Like, what was that all about? You know? Right, exactly. And yeah, that's a really good point that you make in that Karis is propped up to be this kind of like, almost like a mythological figure in, in the eyes of Chris and the eyes of uh, all these doctors now who are like, hey, we've run out of potential cures, we should probably like start thinking about outside the box type cures. And then right. as soon as he's really faced with the first test, 
he like breaks down and obviously that's after like the loss of his mother is hitting a little harder and it's making him more susceptible to kind of like the devil's will in a lot of different ways. Um, I just thought that that was a really interesting character dynamic that again, if you don't have all of that development in the first hour of the movie, then a lot of that kind of loses the significance in a big way. 100%. That's why I say the movie earns every second of buildup that it that it gives you. I don't think there's a wasted scene either in the original or in the version, uh, the director's cut, because it's all necessary. It all makes the movie better. It all serves the story. And it just kind of makes sure that you are grounded in this in this very real situation where everyone kind of reacts the way you would react. Where it's like, no, that's bullshit. Nobody's possessed. You know, that's insane. And uh, they make sure to to uh, to ground it and then punch you in the face, like I said, like that. But it's, at some point, it's completely undeniable, you know. And but it was never something that Marin would have denied. Marin knew what was going on from the very beginning. And he's, you know, it's like when they're about to go in, even when they're right about to go in to do the exorcism. Kara says to Marin, "Well, like, I guess you'd like for me to tell you about the three distinct personalities." And Marin interrupts him and says, "There's only one. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? This is not psychiatry." This is possession, plain and simple. This is a demon. And you got to get with the program here, mister. You know, because he and he's really brought low by that by that kind of scene, because uh, before that, he's kind of held up on a huge pedestal to be like the answer. And then you realize, oh, no, he isn't. You know, he's right. actually going to get knocked out and then have to come back. And well, we'll talk about the ending, I guess, after. It's a valid point still, because this idea that even if at a certain point he basically becomes useless, during the, the uh, exorcism, he it's just like, oh, you talked this big game about all this experience and everything, and now you kind of are faltering at the first type of uh, sign of adversity. Right. Um, and yet he's still vital to the entire story. And he's vital, obviously, we get to the end of the film, he still plays such a major role in it. And it's never really like he's neutered and then he kind of just disappears or all that time we spent investing in him and experiencing his backstory was wasted in a big way, like, this is his test of faith. And it's very interesting just to see, like, the ebbs and flows to this arc are very grounded in a way that is believable, even though it's, of course, a topic and an event that is completely unbelievable. I've just, I was very taken by the fact that in revisiting the movie, it never kind of feels over the top in a lot of ways. Of course, there are over the top elements, but it never feels like so over the top fantastical that it takes you out of it as if like, oh, they're they're pushing this a little too hard in this regard or another regard. Like it goes to some very kind of extreme places and things that are said and things that are done to people. But at the same time, it's presented in a way that feels very grounded and very realistic. Something that you and I had talked about a little bit on Twitter before this was, what do you think kind of like the effect of the film being written by a devout Catholic and then being directed by an agnostic had kind of like on the final product? Yeah, that's that's a really good topic, I think, because I think it made for the best movie they could have possibly made, because I, I like Blatty. I, he's got some objectionable politics. I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, it, I don't think that he is. Yeah, but, I don't um, think he is. But he had, um, I, I was disappointed to find out he had some politics that I didn't agree with, whatever. He's a Catholic, and, um, but he's a real devout Catholic, or he was, and... Um, so he wrote this movie from a sense of like, the only way I can put it is he was like, well, I'm Catholic. What can I do to scare the shit out of everybody? You know, right. well, I'll well, scare the shit out of Catholics. And there's millions <laughs> of them. So, you know, I'll just, I'll just scare the shit out of everybody with what I know about 
my own faith. And so he did. And the book is great. But this is, an, this is another, I think the, what did The Godfather come out in 72? So I think The Godfather came out one year before this. This is another example of the movie being so much better than the book that it's not even close. But <laughs> that's a little digression there. But um, yeah, for them to both kind of have that view, it's so funny because Friedkin was like, well, no, it's all bullshit, but it seems like a good story. You know, and and Blatty was like, no, no, this is all true. And the movie does that exact thing. The movie has that kind of, but it's not discordant in any way. Like, because right. you have all the characters reacting like Friedkin would react. And you have the actual supernatural thing being the main event of the movie. So right. it's like these two guys got together and made this incredible monument of a film, by the way. I can't, I can't say enough how great this movie is, but... They came together and just made a movie that you could see happening in a weird way. Like the movie right. kind of traps you into and, and you feel Chris McNeil's pain, like or, or at least you you kind of you understand what she's going through. If you have a kid or if you have anybody you care about, it just feels right. like it feels very um, claustrophobic in a way where she can't do anything to help her child. I mean, and, and you get to meet Reagan before that. And she's like the sweetest kid. You know, you get a sense of her. And then you really, you see her deteriorating and, and you're like, okay, I really like this girl and I like this mom and, uh, and I don't understand what's happening and I feel bad. I feel bad for them, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's true the way that you put that and that it's very inescapable, the entire situation. And you see this person that is the pinnacle of fame and wealth and everything. And yet she's presented in the one situation where none of that matters. There's yes. nothing that she can do to escape that reality. And I mean, I wanted to get into some comparisons between her and uh, Karis in a little bit, but in coming back to kind of just Blatty and Friedkin, I kind of, I was interested to learn, cause I didn't know much about Friedkin's uh, personal life. And I didn't know that he was like agnostic and all of these things. And so I'm wondering if he was the perfect director for this because he went to some pretty extreme places, I think is putting it lightly to get his actors to give the performances that he wanted. I mean. There are all these crazy stories of stuff that he did on the set that uh, today would certainly get him, uh, quote unquote, like canceled, I think. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like firing guns on sets to scare people. And I mean, like having crew members yank people so hard on wires that they end up like getting mild concussions and all these things. I mean, I don't know if, let's say like if Blatty was going to direct it. I don't know if somebody that comes from a religious background that like has a big conscious, their personality and things like that. I don't know if they could bring themselves to do that. You know what I mean? Take themselves to some of those extremes and be like, Hey, if I'm going to do these crazy things, I'm going to have to answer for, for that eventually. Yeah. Friedkin said something at some point in his life about, he said, all the great art comes from the most evil place that you could possibly go to in your head. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I, I think it was probably true for him. Because, right. like, he was merciless with these actors and with um, like, and I can say that looking back, like, oh, was, there was almost like a Kubrickian thing to him where he would be like, all right, he'll fire a gun, he'll use a thing, he'll break Ellen Burstyn's back or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Like, looking back, it's not great. Like, I wouldn't have liked to participate in it, but I'm really... <laughs> I'm really happy about the movie it came in. Even the little detail of like the slime was supposed to go on on uh, Jason Miller's shirt and it went in his mouth and stuff like that. And that's a very real reaction of him just being like, God damn it, like I gotta wipe this stuff off of me now. 
and apparently he just tried to kill Friedkin after that. They would, <laughs> he would like they nearly got into fistfights like a million times, and and he was like, "I'm an actor. I don't need you to fire a gun near me for right. me to look startled," you know. But it probably made him look more startled. I mean, Friedkin's probably like, "Yeah, but it can't hurt," you know. How about right. that? And, you know, I I do, and I don't know if you've read anything about the first um, interview he did, the first time he met um, Linda Blair who was, I think, 10 or 11 at the time. I know she was 12 when the movie uh, came out, but he asked her if she knew what masturbation was and something like that. And this is a little girl we're talking about. Right. So it's like, and then and I'm like, all right, Freakin' was a super weird guy. Like, I don't yeah. know why he would do that. But like, I do understand the relevance of it, but like, still. Yeah, I mean, that is something about the film and revisiting it. Like, I didn't, the first time I saw the movie, I didn't know any of the backstory on it. Cause like I said, I was a kid and then in revisiting and getting more into movies and things, I started to research it and learning these things. And if anything, learning all of that that went on during the production of the movie really makes it that much more disturbing. This idea that like seeing these characters in, in pain in the movie is actually like a reality in some of these scenes. Like it gives the film an extra kind of just like connotation of just how disturbing this entire event is. And again, it kind of speaks to this grounded nature of the film that we keep referring to. It's not just that yeah, they were able to make a unbelievable fictional scenario feel grounded and realistic. A lot of the movie, these people were actually like living. If you have your director fire a gun off by your head and it freaks you the fuck out, that's gonna stick with you for a while. Like that's not just for that one reaction. It's like, yeah, that pretty sure that's gonna carry over into a really tense relationship that comes across throughout the entire film and just like how all of these people carry themselves and how that kind of influences their character arcs from the beginning of the film, which Initially, you might be like, okay, this seems a little long and out of place. And then yet at the end of the film, when we're getting to these unimaginable horrors, I mean, they are really living those scenarios because the entire film itself is this crazy ordeal for them. I mean, I believe that the film took twice as long to film just because of all the injuries on set. They had like a fire that destroyed all of the sets other than Reagan's room. Uh, they had right. like a bunch of production people die or a couple of production people die or relatives of actors or production people like it's an insane and grueling shoot. And I mean, grueling is a good way to describe the entire film because it's just like it does not leave you. And it kind of does like we had said, it makes it inescapable. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's funny you say that. That's a really good point, because having like they say, having a guy fire a gun near your ear or wherever it was will influence the rest of your performance. You know, you're going to be a little pissed off. I mean, yeah. I don't care who you are. You could be Ellen Burstyn, who was the greatest. I mean, and Jason Miller, who was one of the other greatest. Um, you know, it's the performance is a little bit pissed off. Like, I mean, yeah. it's it's not stiff. I'm, well, a Miller's performance is a little stiff, but in the best possible way, because it should be, you know, yeah. and there was a lot of doubt from the studio about whether he should play the role because he had never done anything. and. Um, and he didn't want to do it and he was he was a pretty interesting guy anyway but that's what he needed he needed a guy with an actual like a realistic vibe like yeah. i mean he was trying to make this movie as realistic as possible and i don't know how he behaved on other sets on the french connection or or whatever else but but on this movie he he was like let's let's the most important thing i can do is to ground it in reality and and it'll be my reality and everyone will suffer for it but <laughs> but the movie will come out uh you know what i would say is a masterpiece yeah absolutely and i think that that background of his probably helps right that he's not a big horror guy making just another horror movie like it feels very distinctly different from other horror movies and that is a big testament to why this i believe this is the first horror movie 
ever nominated for an Oscar. Uh, I believe so. Picture, at least. But it's I just like so. he brings that realism from his previous body of work and influences into a horror film. And I mean, that is a big part of why I think it's so remarkable. But uh, in talking about Jason Miller and how uh, with Karis, I mean, you and I previously spoke about how we find him to be the true protagonist of the film. Obviously, Reagan is the one who's becoming possessed and we're going on that journey with her in a lot of ways, including her mother and other characters such as Marin. But Damien Karras is kind of just like losing his faith and regaining his faith is the ultimate character arc for the entire film. I mean, Jason Miller, tremendous, was a stage actor, first film. Like, I didn't know, I didn't even know that until I started doing more research. Like this, the idea that this is his first feature film performance and yet he does such a stellar job and then he gets nominated for best actor. Like that's so insane to me and it still barely registers, but then you rewatch the film and it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of, <laughs> that makes perfect right. sense why. It like, really does. It really does. And if you know, he kind of talks too low and he's not super sure of himself about how to be in a movie, but it just, it's a, it's a testament to the director because of how good that performance was. And also he is really good, but you got to kind of, I think he had to cajole it out of him a little bit. Like right. maybe not fire a gun in his in his <laughs> face or whatever, but yeah. but he needed some some coaching, I guess, because this mm -hmm. being his first movie, so he coached him all the way to an Oscar nomination. The point that you made though, like this idea that he needed to be kind of like coached a lot, that really helps his character because his character it's so important to his character arc where he's this guy who there you were told that he's a priest and yet he doesn't seem like a priest. He's right. super cynical. He uh, doesn't behave in a, like a priestly manner, uh, as it were. And he's very reserved in a lot of ways. And he's like not charitable. Like in the scene when he's in the subway, he looks down and there's uh, a homeless guy asking him for money. And he like, it looks like he's almost about to spit on him or something. And it's like, that's right. Are we sure that this dude is actually a priest? He looks disgusted in that. Scene. Yeah. And it just seems to me like if there was somebody that was very seasoned and they knew like, oh, this is how I would play a priest or not even that, just like, I know how I'm supposed to act in film because I'm an actor. Like, right. I think that that disconnect with Miller is really important in kind of just his character seeming conflicted because it's like, I'm sure he showed up on set day one and was like, okay, what the fuck do I do here? There's no stage. Like, I have no clue what I'm doing here. And what am I acting at? What, there's usually an audience. Where do I aim my performance? You know? Exactly. And I think that that really is a big part of why his character is so convincing in that he looks like he's lost half the time. And I mean, at this point in the film or in Karis's life, like he's a lost dude. He's at his wits end almost uh, grappling with his loss of faith. Extremely. And the loss of his mother, which just adds to that. Like he's sitting there. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is maybe 30 seconds long, maybe a little longer, but he just gets a drink with his boss, with the, uh, the I don't know what, the bishop or whatever you would call him. He's not in a lot of scenes, this boss. He's, he's the guy who uh, says, let's look at Father Lancaster Marin. And, but he also has a drink with Damien Karras at one point. And Karras says, I need out, Tom. I'm unfit. And then he just looks down and he says, I think I've lost my faith, Tom. Not I'm losing my faith, not I'm having a crisis. He says, I think it's gone. And I'm coaching these other people. And he says their problems come down to, to it's more than psychiatry. This comes down to, to their faith and their lives. And, and I just can't cut it. He says, I'm not, I'm not up for this. And it's an interesting thing that he would say that because I'm unfit. Like, well, he's got a much bigger battle coming ahead of him and he's going to need all the faith that he could possibly muster to, to win it. it. It's funny because it, as 
writing as a Catholic as Vladdy was, you think about the Bible and you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're at all familiar with that. And he, um, Jesus says, can we not do this? Essentially, he says, let this cup pass from me, but not your will done, mine. And um, he kind of asks out. He kind of says, I'd rather not do this. Like, I'd rather not get crucified. But Karis kind of does the same thing. And I'm sure that was intentional on Blatty's part. And that's, mm. it's just in a Catholic context. Like in, like in this movie, Catholicism is true. Like regardless of, of your, you know, religious views or anything like that. Like in the context of the exorcist, Catholicism is literally true. So mm. it's, it's, uh, it's funny because the parallel between Karis and Christ is, is intentional, you know. And of course, the, the ending of the movie where he does in fact lay down his life to save the girl, to save the innocent person. Meanwhile, he wasn't a person of extreme faith. It was it was this extreme thing that happened that kind of drove this reaction in him. And in fact, it's the question that uh, Chris McNeil asks him. She says, is she going to die? And he looks up and he realizes that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And he, I, I feel like he's thinking back to when the demon told him, I'll leave her alone when she's dead, stinking in the earth. And like the movie's so good that it doesn't give you a flashback of that moment, but like right. makes you think about it. Like, you know, thank God. But um, it, uh, and then he gets up and he says, no, no, she's not going to die. And and he marches up to the room and he finds Father Marin dead. And that's when he loses it. <laughs> just beats the shit out of a 12 year old girl. To be honest with you, that's what happened. But she's a demon. So he's got to, he's got to he save her. He gets a pass. He gets definitely a pass. Gets a pass for, that time. As far as a grown man committing incredible violence against a 12 year old girl, this movie is the only one where it's even halfway acceptable, I think. <laughs> well put. One of my favorite segments is the contrast between Karis and um, Chris, right? In that when we see that Chris is this big movie star, she's on the set of a film, and then throughout, and we see literally Karis walking by through the crowd uh, as the film, and we kind of just see the contrast of where they're at. Like one is surrounded by all these people and she's the center of attention. Meanwhile, this man of faith who used to be in society like the pillar of community and in some extent it's obviously it still is but it's just like that used to be the big deal that this movie star is receiving all this attention now um, and something that right. i was really interested in is kind of just the contrast between their lives we see lavish luxury and then we see one of a man who dedicated his life to faith and yet more or less he's living in poverty he doesn't yeah. have the means to support his mother and he's grappling with the fact that like, it's not him comparing his situation to hers. That's very much left up to the viewer and Friedkin leads us through that. But yeah, it's hard to ignore the fact that like, this acting I'm sure is difficult, but it's like someone goes and pretends plays all day and they're living the high life. And yet this one man who, his job is to serve a community and to be uplifting and to give people hope and faith and help them work through problems. And yet he can't even afford a hospital for his sick mother. She dies i believe in an asylum um which is the implication of like that uh, horrifying segment where he goes in and like everybody wants to give their last rights and confess for a lifetime of sin if they're even halfway sane still so yeah and he violently pulls away from them yeah exactly and that's another example of like that's not very priestly this idea that you're supposed to kind of be open arms to everybody no matter right. what creed or color and all of these different things but it's it's that's the most disturbing part of the movie, I think, for me, is like Reagan obviously begins showing symptoms of unnatural behavior, but it doesn't start super aggressive. She doesn't start twisting her head around at the first sight of right. becoming possessed. It begins very gradually. 
And we even in the director's cut get those scenes where she goes to the doctor's office and we get the long series of her getting tests and all these things. And yet those scenes are contrasted to Karis's mother and how she doesn't get any care for anything. And she's just like strapped to a gurney somewhere. Meanwhile, this little girl is going through God knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of like state-of-the-art medical tests. Right. And, and Karis's inability to financially care for his mother is not only being thrown in his face by her state and by where she is, but by her brother, by his uncle. Yep. Who, is, who exists purely to say to him, hey, uh, who's got the money for that? D Dimmy, not you, you know, like, uh, and he says to him, if you're not, if you weren't a priest, you could be living on Park Avenue. You could be doing really well. And it's not like Damien doesn't know that, you know, like he is obviously a brilliant psychiatrist who could have chosen a private life. But in in his younger years, his faith must have been overwhelming to, for him to choose that life. And now it's it's just not like that. And he's dealing with what he feels are the consequences of his decision. And he's like, man, I made the wrong call. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's like, my mom's dead. I don't believe in this God anymore. And uh, and I just made the wrong decision. My life is all wrong. It's all wrong. Just like the movie. Like it's, everything feels wrong, you know? Exactly. And I think something that is super depressing that now that I think about it is like whenever he's introduced to other people, I feel like he reads through his laundry list of credentials of education. It's almost like why are, when he's being introduced as a solution to the problem, people are like, well, what is so special about you? This idea that he is not sort of this pivotal figure in a community, as you would assume, comes along with the caller. People are just like, well, what is your background? Like, what is your experience? What makes you qualified? What makes you special? And then he's like, actually, I have all of like Harvard, all these different schools. He's got this vast wealth of edu uh, education and whatnot. And yet people don't assume that about him. No, he has to toss it around. He has to say it. You might think like the caller would prevent him from having to do that. You would think he would get the benefit of the doubt. Whereas in some situations with characters, it's almost like, okay, like, but what are you going to do that's different? And then he has to read the laundry list. Actually, no, I'm more I went qualified to Yale, for I'm you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that, that's definitely blatty coming up with that like just being like listen here's the here's i think that Blatty's whole deal is like the reason this happened to these people is because there's no faith in the house there's no religious belief and it's it's uh and she a, a subtle thing it's not really that subtle once you're looking for it but um that chris just blasphemes throughout the whole movie like she's <laughs> yeah. just like jesus christ like oh my god like the whole time that's just how she talks it's just a very natural thing and she's on the phone with people like, you know, for Christ's sake, like she just keeps saying stuff like that. Also like being divorced, ton of the time, like drinking and just a lifestyle that I'm not, I don't know much about Catholicism, but it seems to me like that is not the ideal life that somebody that is devoted to Christ would lead. Yeah, it's it's certainly not the life that, that Vladdy would have approved of, right. you know, that, like. That's the best way to put it. Right. And so she is in a way of like, I mean, she's made out to be kind of a bad person in a Catholic sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's not that, you know, I don't think she's a bad person or anything like that, but she's, um, yeah, you, you bring up a really good point that she's kind of living this, this life of, com it's completely absent of faith and absent of the idea of God. Even when the, um, when the doctors ask her, do you have any religious beliefs? And she says, she straight up says, no, like, absolutely. That's ridiculous. I'm a modern person. I don't have any religious beliefs. And, and he says, what about your daughter? I'm like, no, absolutely not. And they're like, well, that's weird because usually this only happens to people who have religious beliefs and blah, blah, blah. But again, it's real. Like it's really yeah. happening in the context of this movie. 
So I guess kind of in transitioning from a lot of the kind of grounded and religious comparisons and things like that and getting into the full-blown events of the end of the film, which of course spirals completely out of control and we see the more uh, supernatural uh, second half of the film, not that the first half was all that uh, unsupernatural. Right. Um, what about kind of just the portrayal of possession in The Exorcist makes this your favorite demonic possession film or your favorite horror film for that matter? It's definitely both. It might. It's one of my favorite movies in general. But about that particular part of it, which is probably the biggest part, like you said, it doesn't start off completely uh, green head, you know, 360, uh, 180 degree turn. Um, it's uh, It's like very very slow the transition and when she is finally in the in the in her final state i guess as the demon it's horrifying i mean and you've never if you're watching this movie in 1973 you've never seen a possession movie before you've never even heard of one there have been hundreds since then but it's a real it was a real genre starter i guess you could say yeah and i mean funny again mentioning just like never seeing anything like that i still haven't seen any demonic possession movies that capture the look of somebody that is literally rotting from the outside quite to the same extent that this movie does obviously there's plenty of films where it's like yeah the person begins looking very normal and a human host and yet they resemble the living dead by the end of it but there is something about the makeup design in this film and at the helm of that was uh dick smith the makeup artist even for somebody that has watched several hundred maybe horror films with crazy special effects and practical work and all these things like this movie is still so uncomfortably disturbing to watch and it's even some of the scenes where heads aren't spinning we're not vomiting blood or slime it's just having a conversation with this little girl that is literally rotting before you and seeing yeah. that it just it hits as hard as it does the first time i saw the movie when i was 10 like it's so disturbing and a way that i mean it really does feel timeless in a way of just capturing how disturbing this film is right and also because you get to see her in her normal little girl happy state for such a long time. And the movie really spends a lot of time on her in that. And then slowly you see her kind of deteriorate to the point where she's strapped to the bed. And uh, and, and it's like Carl, the, the servant guy, the, uh, who's like, uh, the first question he asks about her is she's going to be well? And he says, he refers to her as she still because he loves her and she's a little girl. But then when the first time Karis goes and visits uh, Regan, Carl is just standing outside the door and he says, it wants no straps. <laughs> and it's like, he's just straight up referring to her as it now. He knows like this is bad news. Like I do not know what is in there. And then you go in with Karis and you see it and you're like, wow. And like you said, it still looks really good. Like it, it's one of those movies, it's, it's um, it's going to be 50 years old, or is it, and uh, why does it still look so real? It's And it's the tribute to the makeup artist, right? Yeah, absolutely. This was one of those movies that, I mean, they were, when they were making it, they were like, this is definitely going to try to give us like an X rating or something. And the MPAA didn't give it any cuts on the basis, apparently, that like there is a cultural significance to this film and there's merit in watching this past like gore or blood and all these things. And I think that that really does speak again to as good and as creepy as the practical work and the makeup is, the film structure is so at the core of what makes this just so remarkable in a way that it heightens everything that happens in the second act of the movie. Like I mentioned uh, probably far too much, the fact that like a lot of horror films, the third act can be the weakest because directors kind of like, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to show you something in the first 25, 30 minutes. And it's like in this, so many of them, I think the first quote unquote scare would be 
like when she goes into the when Chris goes in the attic and the candle kind of like erupts and then extinguishes. But there aren't many supernatural moments until like almost an hour into the movie. And I think that really is very key. Granted, Friedkin kind of placates us for a while with um, that carotid, I forget what the procedure is, the medical procedure that Reagan does in the hospital, where the doctor is sticking these needles into her neck and pulling it out and then blood starts shooting. Right. Like, that scene is so incredibly difficult to watch. And it's almost the scariest part of the movie because yes. in kind of researching the movie, learning that that is what the actual procedure is like. Obviously, Friedkin was restrained enough. He wasn't like, hey, I'm going to start stabbing this little girl with needles, even though he's firing guns and stuff. But <laughs> I mean, it is one of those things where that scene is so uncomfortable because it is very realistic. And the time that was spent kind of establishing this relationship with this little girl and her mother and the kind of the uh, parameters of this world and those who inhabit it, I mean, it gives that scene an extra context that is uh, super, again, super disturbing, a word I've used to death, but I mean, there is no other way to describe it, really. Yeah, that's what it is. And for the amount of time they spend with her in the just the, the little medical room, it makes everything scarier because it makes it, like, like I keep saying, it makes it realer. It grounds everything in such a real place that, because that's what you would do if, if your little girl started to exhibit strange behavior like very strange behavior you know she came down and singled out the astronaut i want to, and I, speaking of the beginning of her strange behavior i want to just heap as much praise as i can on the shot of it starts out with the priest playing the piano and everybody's around him and then it pans uh kind of a little bit out and you see the astronaut and he's standing there and then it pans out just enough for reagan to walk into the frame and she singles out the astronaut and says, you're going to die up there. And it's all one shot. Well, one, they cut to her and have her say it. But but, right. but until she walks into the shot, it's just one shot. And it's beautiful. It's Because she comes in and you're like, oh, shit. Because everybody starts looking at her right away. As they would in a normal party setting. If a kid walked in, they'd be like, oh, I, and the, I think Father Dyer says, we have a guest. Look, haha, the kid's here. Just kidding. The kid's going to say something horrifying <laughs> and piss all over the floor. You know? And it's... Yeah. It's like, it's so real, but then it, it just takes that left turn of like the, the possession deal. And it's, oh man, it's, it's a perfect movie. I really can't, I can't say enough about how good it is. Again, it speaks to this idea. The more that we talk about it, the more I think about it. Like, I don't know how many directors that are within the horror genre, they made their name and they made their bones as it were, like making horror films. I don't know if this film would have the same look and the same feel in terms of just establishing the sets and everything like there is a very kind of structured non-traditional horror element to the film in that the way that the shots uh the cameras are lined up and everything like that and kind of just it has the mannerisms of a film that tradition that traditionally does not feel horror there are all these horrifying things that happen and yet it doesn't feel like a horror movie until the first i don't know 45 minutes into the movie or something like that again it's kind of like there are these, um, you know, like action comedies. I feel like there's this, I forget the article. I read an art. Yeah, this is a very strange tangent, but in action comedies, part of the reason why the humor sometimes in those works better than it would if it was just a straight comedy is because it's shot like an action movie. Right. There's some kind of like psychological thing that goes into that where your brain is expecting one thing and then it gives you something else. So even if it was in like just a straight comedy, it might not be that funny since your brain is expecting like an action movie or an action shot when that line comes in there like oh that hits a little differently than it normally would yeah i feel like that is so true about this movie and kind of the example you gave 
Like Friedkin lines up that shot so perfectly that it just feels like it's very normal. And yet something, two very abnormal things happen leading up to that or following that. Yeah, it's kind of like, like you made me think about Shaun of the Dead when you talked about an action, like a movie that's shot like an action movie, but it has that funny shit happening too. It's like, that's why right. that movie is so good. But we're not talking about that movie. Um, <laughs> when she comes down the stairs and, and that first time, and it's only in the, uh, the, the director's cut, the, the famous crab walk deal. It's like, I, th that's the only thing I would kind of quibble with in the director's cut is I think that happens a little too early. And then they cut away, like, what happens next? She's loose, like, you know, but... Um... Yeah, so I have never seen the theatrical. I think I've, I've only actually seen the director's cut. I believe in the theatrical version, it was her running around on the floor, like, licking people's ankles or something like that. It was, it was like, it's very strange still, but I feel like that at least would have, had they had that in earlier, it's not so demonic where she's upside down vomiting blood. You know what I mean? Right. I think if they had pushed that crab walk further into the movie when things become truly supernatural almost like it would have fit in a little bit better i think i mean that's a very iconic moment obviously that's yeah like one of those scenes where everybody has to talk about it and oh it was so disturbing and everything but it's like yeah i think i would agree with you that that's one of those scenes where it's like that's a little early just in terms of the rest of the setup for the movie. Yeah, just the way the movie is made. Yeah, the way it's structured and the way it waits and waits and waits. And the whole time you kind of feel like, I mean, the movie is not really done in a POV deal. It's not Halloween, but mm -hmm. like at the beginning of it, you kind of feel that it is because you're like, like when Chris is walking, there's a there's a kind of shot of like, she's through the bushes or whatever. The way the, way the shot's set up when she first walks home early in the movie and they first play the exorcist theme or tubular bells or whatever you want to call it. It's the Exorcist theme to me, but um, I was gonna, I was gonna say uh, if anybody if I was to describe it that would be the way I'd describe it. That's how you get people to know what you're talking about, right? Like right. yeah, and otherwise like, they're gonna be googling on their phone or some shit. Right, and um, so the first but the first time it kind of shows her from an angle and it, it gives you a little bit of a sense of a POV shot where you're like okay, who is watching her? Who is watching all these things? And it almost seems like the demon is there with her the entire time on a rewatch and, and the third. And, 350th rewatch it, it it does feel like the demon is present throughout the whole first half of the movie if you just kind of watch it and look for him but you're not looking for that early on like the first time you see it you know that's not a first time watch kind of deal but it's very very uncomfortable because you get the sense that evil is right there with her and can do whatever it wants she's at the mercy of this this entity that is very very strong you know whatever it is again like the exception of the uh, spider walk down the stairs like the film is scares are structured in such a way that it does build gradually to the point where, well, I mean, what shit, once you get to that crucifixion scene, like you oh. I, again, like as many horror films as you and I have seen, and we've seen the best of the best in the last 10 years and best yep. of the best all throughout all the decades. But I mean, that scene is just so fundamentally disturbing and it's a combination of, again, like practical work, victim being a child, and then also just the horrific things that are set, that she's saying, the combination of all three of those, I mean, it makes for a scene that hits as hard in 2020 as it did in 1973, I'm sure. And Absolutely. they had, and, and that audience back in the day had zero context for anything nearly that graphic. So, I mean. Yeah, which is why it really just fucked people up in a serious way. It screwed people up in a serious way. Um, and. I really love the idea. I was watching it last night and I was thinking to myself, if if they had chosen a younger child, like say it's an eight year old or a nine year old, the story's still the same for the most part. But 
Reagan or Linda Blair, I don't know if she was tall for her age or whatever, but she was she was a little bit taller than like she's almost as tall as her mother. So you get a sense that this kid's a little tall for her age. And so if she were to act aggressively, she'd be a little bit of a problem. You know, <laughs> like she, if she were to try to kick somebody's ass, yeah, you could probably win. But, she, you know, you're a priest and you're not expecting her to come at you like that she's a huge problem because she looks like she can handle herself a little bit i wonder if that went in went into the casting at all that she was like a taller girl you know or or at least she looks like one i don't know if she actually yeah i think also that kind of speaks to the idea that it is it's more grounded right it's more believable if it seems like she's taller or just bigger than a really little kid like the idea that you could deal with an aggressive kid that size is a little more believable than if it's a six or seven year old or whatever that's like running around throwing a tantrum. You know what I mean? It just seems extrapolated from something that is very believable and yet it goes into the completely unimaginable, horrific head turns, vomit spitting uh, demon child. Right, I, I can't imagine the phone calls that Vladdy and, and Friedkin must have had late night about this movie, you know? Getting her to do it, they needed her to do I mean, they had body doubles, obviously, body doubles, and they also had somebody else doing the dialogue for a lot of that horrific stuff, but Mercedes just kind of- Cambridge, yeah. Yeah, exactly, who I believe had to sue Warner Brothers to get her credit put back on the bill because right. she she initially was like, I don't want to be associated with this. And then they were like, hey, we're throwing this movie some Oscar noms, like you might want to be associated. Yeah, well, Linda Blair was nominated and it was like, I think the Academy, from what I understand, the Academy kind of wanted to withdraw. They didn't withdraw the nomination, but they, you know, for, for they um, completely discarded the idea that, that Linda Blair would win when they found out that she didn't do the demonic voice work. And I'm thinking to myself, who who thought that she did that? Like, who would? Right, yeah. Did you watch the movie? Like, she, it's clearly an adult, you know? Also, also just like a common decency thing. Do you really think that they were going to have a kid say that stuff in 1973? But, right. Um, I mean, in speaking about the Academy, too, like the Academy president at the time, I believe, I don't know what his name is, um, but he, I believe, threatened to quit if they tried to give it best picture really maybe? i forget yeah it, maybe it was the award that they were going to give to linda blair but i remember he was like so opposed to the film being this thing that was unholy or whatever like yeah. the film had this notoriety surrounding it that like people were so disgusted and offended by it and all these things but top to bottom it's just one of those films he sounds like a fun guy but... yeah really he was one of those guys who like his entertainment of film began and ended with like Gone with the Wind or something. Like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the world he preferred, I feel. I can tell you what this guy looked like. I don't know anything about him, but I can right. tell you what he looked like. Um, yeah, and you can tell his mannerism at parties. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. He's no fun at all, this guy. He's watching The Exorcist like, oh my God, this is the most, this is the most horrible thing I've ever seen. We're going to nominate it for an Oscar. Oh my God. Yeah. He was like me when I was 10. He got 30 minutes in and was like, <laughs> I, have to tap, I have to tap out at this. But I've done. I mean, for, for as extreme as the film does get, I think in a lot of ways, it does a good job of being like subtly terrifying again. And that comes back to like the human angle and this being very much a character driven horror movie. It's not kind of just all for shock value and the things that happen. That's why I think those shocking moments hit that much harder, right? Because we're invested in these people, we're invested in their plight and we want to see them overcome that. And yet there are very subtle scares that stick with me in a lot of ways, like with Karis and he has the nightmare with his mother and he sees her at the subway and she can't hear him when he's shouting or he can't hear her. And then she kind of just turns around and walks back down the subway. Like 
that is a scene in a movie that is so disturbing because it's so accurate of what a nightmare would be. Yeah. He's not just seeing the demon in his dreams and the demon face is chasing him. It's something relatable, something that is very believable. And yet it's a person not having control over their own body or a situation that is very realistic, I think is just the perfect contrast to the insanity that happens later in the movie with something that everybody can relate to on some level. Right. It's he cares. This is the person he cares about most in the world. And he's having a nightmare that she's going away. He's across the street and he's waving to her and she can't hear him. And she goes up and then she goes down, which, of course, probably is some metaphor for hell. Right. And, and she's headed down and he can't stop it. And he's he's completely lost control. It's a real nightmare that somebody might have about their their ailing uh, elderly mother. And that's his whole deal. And that's how the demon gets to him, you know, is like he's told before he goes in the demon is a liar do not listen the demon is a liar do not listen but he says it'll be a psychological attack damien that's what kara says and um and then finally the demon literally makes him see his mother and hear her voice and stuff like that and says shut up shut up you're not and marin just has no patience for it. he says get out damien just get out right now i got to do this myself because you are compromised my friend but it's only it's only the question of will she die again a real a real world question Chris is just concerned with the safety of her daughter. And Kara, she says, is she going to die? And Kara says, no. And finally, he marches back up there because this that's what's at stake. He says, oh, shit, that's what's at stake. I can't let this little girl die, no matter what. That thing that becomes his biggest weakness, which at one point he has to tap out, literally, becomes his saving grace because then he has that conversation with her. And that is what gives him the jolt that's like, hey, I'm having a loss of faith. I don't believe in anything. And yet he's given it just like that. He regains it in a way where he's like, this is what I have to do to overcome this. And that is his ultimate test, right? Where, as you said, he starts beating the shit out of the 12 year old. And then he's literally gives up his own body. And the um, connection you made was very kind of like a connection to uh, Christ, like sacrificing himself in a lot of ways. Where 100%. he's like, yeah, I'm giving up my body. And then the demon gets in him. And then he goes for that swan dive down the uh, out the window and down the stairs. Takes a couple of Frankenstein steps toward the girl. But then he says he gains himself back and says, nope, I'm going to jump out the window and give my own life for this. For the innocent life to continue, which is, again, like a huge, huge deal in the Bible. If you read that one, right. you know, it's uh, yeah. And, and that's obviously where Blatty's coming from. So, you know, regardless of your, your religious views, you got to kind of understand where Blatty's coming from. And why that's so important. But even even without that, it's kind of remarkable what he does. You know, this guy who has something jolted him to have all the faith in the world all of a sudden. Because if evil is real and, and the devil is real, then so is God, right? And that's that's kind of his view anyway. And he kind of for him to grab the child and say, "Come into me, come into me," he's he's acknowledging that this is a real. It's the first time in the movie he acknowledges this is a supernatural entity, and yeah. and he says, "Okay," and then he finally. It, it not only comes into him, but he ends up dead. You know, we end up with two dead priests here. I mean, that's really interesting, too. And it is a testament to the creative team of Blatty and Friedkin in that, like, I approach the movie as somebody that is not religious. And yet none of that right. is lost on me. It's prevalent. Obviously, it's super prevalent. And the more you start picking up on little things and paying attention, it becomes even more prevalent and uh, clear. But at the same time, it never feels alienating or kind of like preachy if it works either way if, if yeah it works either way and it's one of those things where i don't know sometimes if you're dealing with like demonic horror 
there might be a tendency to be a little preachy maybe or something like that or have characters kind of expound these tombs of knowledge of ancient scripture and all of these things and to focus on that whereas in this film it's able to take the core of all of those things and make it very palatable to everyone and that's probably why it was up for an oscar and it made such a big deal in that i mean everybody was able to approach this movie that was unlike anything anybody had seen and yet whether you had that background or not you could still enjoy it for the story it's telling and obviously in getting to talk with you about it and just kind of like researching things the more religious uh, sentiment in the film becomes more apparent to me and a greater understanding of those things and yet it's still a phenomenal movie even if you don't have those conversations and do those deep dives your appreciation just grows if anything Right, because you're just put, like any movie, you're just put in the situation that the characters are in, right, really effectively. And the movie doesn't read scripture to you until it literally reads scripture to you. <laughs> like, but, uh, you know, for the possession scene. But even, even if you have no religious background whatsoever, you can, you can kind of enjoy the power that those words has for the, that those words have, excuse me, for the characters. You know, yes. it's, it's like, you can view it like in, in Avatar or whatever alien stupid movie you can think of, like you, you are the conceit is okay this is the world and this is the thing the conceit in this movie is that catholicism is literally true you know mm -hmm. and like so whether but it's not important for you to believe that at all right. it's it's just the movie is so good that it doesn't it doesn't lean on that at all but um it leans on what the characters feel is true right which is what right. any great story should do and like the contrast between Vladdy and Friedkin i wonder <laughs> i wonder how much Friedkin got his way i would assume 100% <laughs> because of how good the movie came out. And we have The Exorcist 3, of course, that was directed by Vladdy and is way more, um, I don't want to say preachy, but the religious overtones are, are really clear in that one. Yeah. You know, not that they aren't in The Exorcist, but it's a little bit more hit you over the head with it in The Exorcist mm. 3. I mean, I want to talk about Exorcist 3 a little bit, not, not too much, but I think it is a fantastic setup for Exorcist 3 in that we had talked about in the director's cut, the film ends... And if you haven't seen the third film, you're kind of like, what the fuck is this weird <laughs> ending with Kinderman and uh, the character, I believe his name, the priest Dwyer. Uh, they have this little meeting. Dyer, and then yeah. Kinder yeah, Dyer. And then Kinderman basically like tries to invite another person to the movies that doesn't want to go to the movies with them. He's over to it. But then he's like, oh, but you eat lunch or something to that extent. And then they go on like a little bro lunch date, which is perfectly fine. But if you haven't seen the third film, you have to be thinking like, what the fuck is the point of this scene? Why would you end on this way when the theatrical version ends perfectly? Yeah. It ends perfectly if you don't know the third film exists, right? Exactly. It looks like like in the in the director's cut, it feels like they just kept filming. <laughs> right. It's like the movie they had ended. some extra film they had to use. Yeah. And it's like they had to meet like a two minute mark or something that or the movie wouldn't get made or something like that. And, okay. Here's a scene of these guys talking about bullshit. Afterwards. But yeah, like it, it seems useless, but it does set up that friendship that the Exorcist three ends up being based on. We we just completely dis discard discard uh, the Exorcist two. By the way, it only has one sequel. It's the Exorcist three. That's all. And that's definitely a film that, in revisiting the Exorcist now, I want to go and rewatch Exorcist three just to see obviously the comparisons between characters carrying over, but also the shift in style because now. We see Blatty, who returns to write, but he's also directing. Friedkin obviously does not direct the third film. Right. And I'm really interested to revisit the third film with this new lens and to kind of 
see what he carried over from Friedkin's style. Obviously, you can't replicate Friedkin, and yet he's still able to kind of like stay true to some of the Friedkinisms of The Exorcist, basically. But at the same time, and you had mentioned they had conflict in a lot of ways, like creative conflicts, seeing what Fried or what Blatty would want in when he gets it his way. It'd be very interesting for me with this new lens, like you had said, it, it seems like in the third film, he beats you over the head a little bit more with it and all of these things. I would be very interested to see how apparent that is now on a rewatch, the differences, but also the things that he probably learned from Friedkin. Right, just just being with a, an all-time great filmmaker like Friedkin and um, and learning how to make a movie, really. And then he made his own movie. And I, I when I say beats him over the beat you over the head with it in the third movie, I don't mean to insult the third movie. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's right. really creepy. In a, in a lot of ways, it's overtly scarier than the than the first one. But yeah. it's just because it doesn't spend all that time building. It's building on the story of the first one. You know, it yeah. was just the novel Legion, which was a sequel to The Exorcist, but he didn't want to call it The Exorcist 3 because the second movie had been so terrible and so poorly right. regarded. But they made him, you know, to, in order to get it made. You got to put Exorcist in the title. There actually <laughs> wasn't even an exorcism in the third movie to begin with. They just added one. So it's right. like, I don't know why it's called The Exorcist, but yeah. Um, anyway, we're talking about the first movie, so I don't want to digress. I don't want um, move to move you too much in that direction. No, but I mean, in kind of wrapping up, were there any elements of The Exorcist that you really enjoy that I kind of skipped over? Or do you think that we kind of covered the core basis of why this is your de facto, not only horror film, but one of your favorite films in general? I just want to, I can't say enough about Karis and his whole arc. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable to me how special this arc is because the stakes couldn't be higher in this movie. It's, it's not only is it the little girl's life, which is, kind of the overt stakes but the 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 subtext is that he has lost his faith and he's again catholicism is true in this movie i'm not a catholic myself but it's it, like he's gonna go to hell for all eternity if he doesn't get this right so that's what is at stake for him in the context of this movie so it's a lot bigger than this little girl dying you know because you know her soul will be safe or whatever you want to call it and he but he is the central conflict of the movie like he's got all these problems and he has this loss of faith and it's only this horrible situation that brings him out of it and finally kills him but in a good way <laughs> you know for him to sacrifice himself for the greater good for the for the life of this little girl you know is really a special thing and um i am such a huge fan of that that whole transition absolutely and i think that that's a great point that you made in that uh, Reagan, it's very much, it's not her fault, right? She's the victim right. of this at no fault of her own. And yet with Karis in the eyes of Catholicism, like this is entirely his fault that he's having a loss of faith. There's something wrong with him that has allowed him to be put into this scenario. And yet to other people, they might be like, well, that's just, he's just a, a human being. And we all have losses of faith in certain things, whether it be religion or whatever. And yet, in the eyes of that context of the film that it drives so heavily, if he does not succeed, he will go to hell. And that is the worst thing imaginable in that context. And the demon knows it. The demon says to him early on, um, it'll bring us together. And he says, you and Reagan. An exorcism would bring us together, you and Reagan. And it says, you and us. And he, so the target of the demon the whole time is Karis. And that, that famous line, your mother sucks cocks in hell, they're, they're talking over the second part of that famous line, which is, your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis, you faithless slime. 
and it's like okay now she's the demon is really attacking him from from where he's at you know like he's in a rough place and she's or it is going to a very very soft spot for him yeah absolutely and again it comes back to this idea that this is a very much blueprint for every horror film that should be character driven and it's like all of these things that we're talking about all the events that happen all of the trials and tribulations that the characters take it's because that initial investment is there and whether it be physical or emotional or spiritual kind of turmoil that they're in it's all given added value because of the fact that we're invested in them and that is not something that you can say i mean how in how many horror movies is there a religious character and within the first 15 minutes the only thing that you know about them is that it's like they're a religious person but right. that doesn't have any context to them because we haven't we haven't been given a chance to understand who they are it's just kind of like yeah we don't go to their house and meet their sick mother or anything like that you just see them under a tree reading the bible you know oh look right, religion exactly. yeah yeah exactly and that kind of that dumbing down of religion i think in a lot of films it does a disservice to the angle and that's probably why a lot of demonic horror kind of like misses the mark most of the time in that it thinks that it can kind of bypass all this legwork that in the end it makes for a timeless horror film and for one of your favorite films. That's a great point. I have nothing to add. You said that perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> in wrapping up, man, I had a uh, I had a blast chatting with you about The Exorcist. I mean, I love having guests on that they have a favorite film that I haven't revisited in a while and it gives me a chance to kind of revisit it and then through talking about it, it gives me kind of a renewed uh, love for the film and whatnot. And I mean, who knows, maybe in the future, I'll have you on to talk about uh, Exorcist 3. That would be really fun, man. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was super fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.